Welcome to the CHROSA podcast. In this episode, you will hear from a diverse panel of experts about the pros and cons of decentralized decision-making in a world of ongoing uncertainty. The panel includes Tim London, the founding partner of US-based consultancy Dwyer London, and a former professor at the UCT Graduate School of Business. Tim has done everything from training consultants, doing their MBA, and working with boards of directors from multinationals to coaching CEOs and helping teachers become school and system leaders. Ronnie Turin is currently the HCM Development and Strategy Leader for Africa at Oracle. Prior to the pandemic, Ronnie traveled across the continent to present at various talent management events. He is an occasional guest lecturer to MBA students at Wits Business School and Gordon Institute of Business Science and to HR master students at the University of Johannesburg as well as the University of Pretoria where he is also on the examination panel for the Industrial Psychology master students. Last but not least, Nanette van Arde is the organizational design lead at Momentum Metropolitan Holdings. With a master's in industrial psychology, Nanette will provide nuance around the experience before and after Momentum's merge with Metropolitan, where a centralized management approach was adopted and later tweaked to what is a significantly decentralized model today. This podcast is sponsored by Oracle, a multinational technology company that offers a comprehensive and fully integrated stack of cloud applications and platform services. Welcome to another episode of the CHRO South Africa podcast. My name is Sungulan Kabinde. I'm the community manager at CHRO South Africa. And today we'll be discussing the pros and cons of decentralized decision making. If the last two years have taught the world anything, it is that the key to thriving in this amplified VUCA world is having the freedom and ability to adapt to change quickly. In one word, it's adaptability. That's the all-encompassing word that thought leaders love to use when describing future-proof people and organizations. But what does it mean practically? To answer this question, we have a panel of three experts who will speak on the organizational cultures, tools, and people strategies that are essential in order for decentralized management models to thrive in this era of constant uncertainty. Now, before we get started, I'd like to introduce our panel which includes Tim London, the founding partner at US-based consultancy Dwyer London, Ronnie Turin, who is currently the HCM Development and Strategy Leader for Africa at Oracle, as well as Nanette van Arde, who is the Organizational Design Lead at Momentum Metropolitan Holdings. Welcome to all of you, and thank you so much for making yourselves available for this conversation. I'd like to start with you, Nanette, because you worked at Momentum both before and after its merge with Metropolitan Holdings, and I think it was 2011. And I'd like to know how the decision-making approach has evolved in that time. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So I think a little bit of context to the merger. The merger took place in 2010, and it was a merger between two different businesses. So one business very structured, while the other business is a little bit more entrepreneurial and bringing these two together. The business at that point adopted a more centralized operating model with centers of excellence and certain client segments focusing on delivering products to clients. Some feedback from that time was that the model was slow. It it hampered some of the decision-making. Decisions were slow to get to where it needs to go. 
and caused quite a bit of frustration um, within the system. Our CEO, Hilly Mayer, in the recent Financial Mail, has an article where he talks about the turnaround and specifically some nuances in terms of the operating model. Following that, and he's coming back to the business, the business then adopted a very decentralized model or what we call a federated model. The federated model then resulted in product line businesses or businesses with end-to-end accountability for their bottom line. And we have 14 business units uh, or businesses within this operating model. So you can imagine with 14 businesses owning end-to-end what they need to deliver, it does have an impact in terms of decision-making on what is the role of Exco within that. So in terms of that, what we had to do is to have a conversation around what is the role of Exco and how does Exco want to show up? So we used metaphors um, in a conversation with Exco to really have this conversation. In the absence of having the conversation, people tend to um, make decisions in the way that they think they have to or expectations from Exco in terms of either previous experience or assumptions. So the three metaphors that we came up with that really lay the foundation in terms of decision making is to say Exco can show up in one of three ways. The first one being an athletics team. In this metaphor, your Exco functions under the same team logo and identity, but each is an expert in their own specialist activity and driving towards a common goal, but different activities within it. So in this type of metaphor, you can hear that it is very much almost a decentralized type of Exco or light touch integration. The second one um, is a football team. So the football team analogy speaks about a collective driving towards a common goal, playing together to reach that strategy, um, highly dependent on each other. And the third one is the Olympics team, which is very suited given that the Olympics just took place. And here Exco operates as an Olympics team in a combination of individual sports and team sports operating under one common flag. So the commonality and what we drive together is quite important in this metaphor. Yeah, you can also decide what should be managed a little bit stronger than others. So individual sports versus team sports um, within that. And this conversation really set the tone for us in terms of how do we manage the tensions that naturally exist in a decentralized model. The other important conversation that we had at the point is to say, how does group functions operate? So group functions having to play across multiple business areas with different nuances, different focus areas, it is quite important to say how how do we show up um, and what is important within that. So if you do not have this conversation, especially in group functions, you try to be everything to everyone and end up being nothing to no one. So in this conversation, we again used metaphors and there the metaphors is that a group function can show up as a center of excellence or guardian of governance. And here, really, the focus is on risk management. How, what is the things that we need to keep close and control and standardize? The second one is advantage accelerator. And your advantage accelerator looks at what is the capabilities that you can get more value of um, if it is owned centrally and almost deployed into business areas. And the final one is the scaling colonizer. And this is a cost kind of uh, metaphor to say what is the things that just make sense if you house it centrally. Um, and within that, so within your group functions, all of these metaphors come into play in different nuances and nuances and states um, within that to really drive efficiencies. Thank you for that, Nanette. Can you tell us a bit more about the group's new human capital strategy? 
insofar as it's able to weather the storm when it comes to disruptions like COVID-19 and other shocks to the system that require an agile response? Sure. So we recently launched our people strategy. So it's about two years old and we have a 2024 ambition to say that we want to be an employer that is seen uh, that sees our people as human beings and creates a place where they aspire to work, want to contribute meaningfully and stay for their career or their journey to success. Um, our hashtag associated with this is Think Human First. Now, to enable this strategy, there is very specific focus areas that we identified to say we think there are certain levers, but the underlying principle is really to think about who is the person. Um, so we went through a process of developing personas and really understanding our workforce. And our focus areas is to build an EVP that attracts and retains um, critical talent, equip our people with the skills that they need to perform in an evolving workplace, because we know that COVID has accelerated the world of work and the changing world of work, but it will continue to evolve and we need to be responsive as people practices um, within that, but supportive of our employees. We want to build a diverse leadership community that can lead with impact. Um, what are the things that we believe, especially in a decentralized model? What ties us together and how does leaders have to show up within it? And then to prepare our people for working in an evolving workplace. So that involves the tools, the platforms, the way that we think about our practices, um, the flexibility within that as well. And that really is our strategy to say, what is it that we want to do in terms of thinking human first? Um, within a people philosophy. Thank you, Ninette. And over to you, Tim. Uh, you've provided many organizations and MBA students with advice on how to navigate both centralized and a decentralized approach to management. What does the theory say? And to what extent are those teachings really applicable in practice? Um, thank you for that. And uh, thank you for having me on. And um, I, I'm, I am angry, though, that you had me follow someone so smart. So um, I, I will try to recover from, from this. Um, Nanette hit a lot of, I think, really important issues um, that are that are key to making the theory work in practice. And I think that's one of the big things um, that you need to think about. So one of the th points that Nanette made that I think is spot on in, in line with the theories is experts. You need to have expertise. Um, and sometimes you hire experts and sometimes you develop experts. Um, and sometimes you need to develop experts to be experts in other spaces. Um, for many organizations, that's where the, the practice of having a more decentralized space breaks down is they either don't have expertise in those spaces or they have expertise, but they don't trust it, um, which is relatively frequent where they go through a heap of trouble to hire someone um, and pay the money. And sometimes, you know, I, I always think about my scenario, flying me around the around the world and paying for my my lodging and expenses and all that. Um, in a decentralized system, then you should have a process where you then allow those people or that person to get on with what they need to get on with. Um, if you haven't hired experts or if you haven't developed experts or you don't trust those experts, then that decentralized process just fundamentally doesn't work in practice. So it looks good on paper, but it just doesn't work. The other bit is there often is a rush to decentralized uh, types of arrangements for some organizations because, um, and I say this with all due respect to folks, they go and they do a, a master's degree or they take a master's course or, or something and they, they hear all the good stuff about decentralized uh, approaches and they say, well, we'll do that here. And one of the key things to the, to the research is 
centralized or decentralized, one of those isn't the right uh, answer and one of them isn't the wrong answer. It's what fits best for what we're trying to do here. Um, so it is very much thinking about why would we want to be decentralized and why would we want to be centralized? And as Nanette was talking, um, I think very lucidly about it in terms of her organization experience, it was being really thoughtful about where do we want to be decentralized within this organization and where do we want to be centralized? And again, in a, in a really high performing organization, you probably have a mixture of both of those approaches and the, the really high performing ones, they've thought through very carefully why this bit is decentralized and why this bit is centralized. So that I think is essential to making it work is not just saying we're going to do this, but where does it make sense to do this? And then communicating about that really clearly. The other bit that's really key to making this work is if you're going to have a decentralized system, um, you've got these experts, you want to give them the freedom to do that. It is essential, though, that you have a common purpose. And this is something that um, I used to teach a lot about um, back in my teaching days, which is for many organizations, their purpose or vision statement is on their website somewhere, probably on their about us page. Um, but if you ask people who actually work there, what is the what are the values of this organization? What is the purpose or, of this organization? The vast majority of people won't know. And in a centralized system, um, essentially leadership solves that problem by running everything through a very small number of people. So in a centralized system, you lose sight of that purpose. Um, but the hope is that the few people that run everything, they know what the purpose is so they can align things. In a decentralized system, if you don't have a common set of purpose, you just have a, a bit of anarchy um, where lots of people are doing lots of things, but there's nothing tying it all together. So it's essential that um, when I ask you, you know, why does this organization exist? In a decentralized organization, it is imperative that everyone can answer that question. Um, in a centralized organization, it's it should still be important, but you get away with it because you've built enough rules and regulations and policies and procedures to funnel all those decisions to sort of one place. So you don't necessarily need everyone to do it, even though that would be better. The last point I'll hit is um, that Nanette spoke to is the diversity. Um, many organizations, and there's, there's a lot of research on this, um, the hiring process actually speaks to um, getting people in who are like the people who are on the hiring panel. Um, and sometimes that's good. Uh, you know, sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's problematic, though. So um, how do you get diversity of thought? Uh, again, so when I talk about diversity, it's not just race or gender. Um, obviously, those things are very important. But you want to have diversity of backgrounds, experience, training, perspectives, um, all those different types of things as well, because in a in a well in any organization where they centralized or decentralized, really, you need to have that creative thought. Um, you mentioned future proof before. I I always cringe. I've used that word before, but I I always think it's sort of future ready or future prepared because you're not trying to protect yourself from the future. You know, you're not, waterproof means you're you're safe from water. Uh, you don't want to be safe from the future. You want to be able to adapt to it and maybe shape it as well. So. If you're going to be future ready, you need to have creative people, people who can disagree, people who come from different perspectives. And I think that's important for any centralized or decentralized organization. But again, it's in a decentralized organization. If you have diversity as well, you get that entrepreneurial spirit that Nanette talked about, which is essential because people are going to say, well, I know we've done it that way. But how about this? What about this from a different perspective? Thank you, Tim. Uh, over to you, Ronnie. Can you share with us? Um, from a systems perspective, 
the tools and processes that lend themselves more to a centralized approach and also contrast that with the tools and processes that lend themselves more to a decentralized management approach? Hi, Singula. Thanks for, for having me. Um, it, an interesting question, and, and I was listening very carefully to what both uh, Nanette and Tim were saying, you know, about do we go centralized or do we go decentralized? And I think, you know, this this is one of these things that is an ongoing debate, and I think it's almost depending on what the flavor of the month is, which way organizations go. And I think where we're standing at the moment is that we we have around about 60% of organizations centralized and the, the balance um, split between decentralized and a hybrid. Uh, and uh, Nanette was talking about the fact that they have been through both a centralized and a, a decentralized environment. I think the question really, before you, we start looking at um, you know, w- w- what systems can do, is to really start understanding the organization itself. What is the level of maturity in the organization? And also, more importantly, what is the level of maturity of the HR system that you're using? Um, I think critical also is to to understand how HR is viewed within the organization. Are, Are we seeing as adding profit to the organization, as an asset to the organization? Or is this the traditional liability? And if we start looking at how are we going to add value as a profit uh, contributor to that? We then need to look at our systems to say, how do we, A, make them more adaptable, I think was the term that, that Tim was using a little bit earlier, um, in, in terms of being able to, to change very, very quickly. Um, but at the same time, looking at how do we bring um, cost effectiveness in, into the system. So, you know, although we talk about different levels of maturity in organizations, there are different levels of maturity within, within systems as well. Um, obviously organizations like, uh, uh, Metropolitan, Momentum Metropolitan, um, are a fairly high level of maturity from an HR perspective, and they require, by the same token, a high level of sophistication in their, their HR system as well. So when we look at systems, the, the, the better the maturity level of the systems that you have, the more flexible they are to cater for both um, the centralized and the decentralized approach. So typically, um, a, a, an enterprise uh, uh, system, an enterprise uh, level system would provide you you know, with the ability of A, having a, a centralized access to all of the data within the system, whether it's around your recruiting, whether it's around your learning and development, your performance, et cetera, et cetera. Everything needs to be in a in a central place where I can now start accessing um, various bits and po- uh, components to actually make the strategic decisions going forward uh, from an organizational point of view. Um, at the same time, if you have... a a, a really sophisticated HR solution, it will allow you to control the business process at a very central level and provide you with um, uh, the ability to create uh, centers of excellence that can actually respond in a centralized way, but at the same time, being able to control business processes through automation that it gives you the ability to provide a decentralized approach to how you actually run your business, giving some sort of autonomy at the lower levels within the organization. And I think what we're actually going to see from a 
uh, a systems point of view is that it's going to be driven by the increase in maturity levels of organizations. Not sure if that answers the question. It does answer the question. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Uh, my follow-up to that is about HR and the extent to which it needs to come to the party, whether the organization is running a centralized or a decentralized approach. So again, you know, it depends on on what the uh, the organization, how the organization views the HR department. So if the HR function is to to actually contribute to the overall uh, performance of the organ, it, it really first and foremost needs to be part of. Uh, the management team. It needs to sit on uh, at, at, at board and, and be uh, a business partner per se. And in order to be able to do that, one of the things that, that we struggle with from an HR systems perspective is that typically what happens is that the CHRO or the HR director goes into a board meeting and he has a whole lot of static reports available to him, which is telling them what actually happened. The reality is if they have a system that can give them um, more predictive type of analytics around where are we going as an organization and how is HR contributing towards that, then the system actually enables the um, HR director or the CHRO of the organization to add value to the organization. Um, they can also start looking using uh, the artificial intelligence, I'm talking now from an Oracle perspective, that is actually built into our solution to start not only being predictive in terms of, you know, who are our top performing employees who are at high risk of leaving the organization and how do we keep them in there to moving even beyond the predictive analytics to becoming prescriptive in terms of, how can we make certain things happen in the organization? And again, it goes back to the question of how is HR seen in the organization? And I think from an HR perspective, we need to be uh, to actually be not only asking for a seat at the table, but adding value when we're sitting there. Um, and if you have the right tools in place, you have the ability to actually add value to the organization going forward. So I think HR needs to be looking at when they are, um, looking for an HR solution for themselves is to take into consideration how integrated is the solution? How much does it allow me to standardize my business processes, but at the same time, decentralize the management of that? What is it giving me in terms of analytics so that when I am sitting at the, uh, the, the table, I'm actually adding value to the business? Thank you for joining us for part one of the CHRO SA podcast brought to you by Oracle. Join us for part two as we continue the conversation with Tim London, Ronnie Turin and Nanette van Aarde about the pros and cons of decentralized decision making in a world of ongoing uncertainty.